This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. What is your responsibility when you see injustice being done? How bad do things have to get before you say something, before you do something? And where does that responsibility come from? For Amos Giora, this is a deeply personal question stemming from his family's experiences in one of the greatest atrocities in human history. And as he unpacked this question, the question of the bystander's role in stopping injustices, he came to a conclusion. Morals and ethics aren't enough. He thinks there needs to be legal frameworks spelling out our responsibilities to others. Put another way, when we see something, we must do something or suffer the legal consequences. This central idea has taken Giora down a path of examining the role of the bystander in many aspects of society, including, most recently, the abuse of student-athletes. That's going to be the subject of a virtual event hosted by the University of Utah on Friday, January 29th. Amos Giora is a professor of law at the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah, and he's the author of several books pertinent to these questions, including The Crime of Complicity, which was published in 2017, and Armies of Enablers, which was published in 2020. Amos Giora, welcome. Matt, it is always a pleasure to discuss these issues with you. Thank you for having me. Your background is in military law and counterterrorism, national security matters. You've written extensively about these matters in the past, you still do, but in the past few years, you took a pretty hard turn into the idea of bystanding and the responsibilities of bystanders. What sparked that? Eight or nine years ago, I was training for the Salt Lake Marathon and I had a running partner. And in the middle of one of those awful 20-mile runs, she said to me, we're just killing time, right? She said, how did this happen, this being the Holocaust? And even though I'm the only child of two Holocaust survivors, I had a brilliant academic answer, which was, I have no idea. And the reason I had no idea is because my parents had made a decision when they got married that they would never discuss with their children the Holocaust and or their experiences. That was a very common thing for Holocaust survivors to do, right, is to block that out. There's a literally, I think, a 50-50 split. I have friends whose dinnertime conversations with their Holocaust surviving parents was only conversations about the Holocaust. In, in our case, it was never discussed. And so I, first of all, I knew nothing about my parents. I really didn't know who my parents were. And so when, when the question was posed uh, during the course of this 20-mile run, I came back to my apartment and I said, enough is enough. I started reading a lot about the Holocaust, and I came to the conclusion that there was an issue that had never been addressed before, and that was the legal liability, culpability of the bystander. I'm not the first to have addressed the question of the bystander, but I am the first to address the question in the context of the law with respect to the Holocaust. And the more I got into it, the more I got into it, and the more I got into it. And so two things happened. One, I ended up writing the book, The Crime of Complicity. But I think more importantly is I finally learned about my parents' experiences. And I also learned along the way that not only did I not know about their experiences, but they had never shared with each other each other's experiences. If you can, if you feel sure. comfortable doing so, sure. tell me a little bit about their experiences. My mother was a 12-year-old child in Budapest. She was in hiding in the attic, literally in the attic with my grandmother. My grandfather was in a work camp in the Ukraine. And my mother and grandmother were fed every day by an elderly Catholic woman who was able to bring them food. But someone in the apartment building 
outed them, just like Anne Frank. And my mother and grandmother were twice taken to be shot. There was a, call it a Jewish underground who had stolen the uniforms of the Iron Cross, who were the Hungarian collaborators with the Nazis. And the Jewish youth who had stolen the uniforms, nighttime were frantically running around Budapest, trying to find people, save people who were about to be shot in a ruse manner. So they, in this particular case, what they did was, as they were, my mother and grandmother were about to be shot, the Jewish youth said to the Iron Cross, you know, something like, leave these Jews to us, we'll take care of them. It was a ruse. It was, and it was fortuitous. Um, and that's how they survived the first time. Um, my mother will not share how she and my grandmother were saved the second time they were taken to be shot. I think about 20 years ago, my parents were at a dinner party in Tel Aviv. One of the people at the dinner party was that guy who that night had saved my mom. Wow. Right? You can't make this up. What do you even say all Pro those years later? I would, it, like, wow. So I called him, actually, and I asked to meet with him. And he very firmly indicated to me that he will not meet with me. And I said, you know, without you, I'm not here. And he made it very clear that he would not, under any circumstance, engage with me. And I learned along the way, that's not unusual. There is a sense, and I'm not in any way being critical, but there's a sense among some of these people who call them beyond heroic is an understatement, right? Their take on life is if you weren't there, you can't understand. Tell me about your father. Sure. So my father was is also from Hungary. And in Hungary, the Nazis did what's called, they worked outside, inside. They began in the periphery of Hungary and came to Budapest, which is why many of Budapest's Jews survived the war, unlike Jews who lived outside of Budapest. My father was in a camp in Serbia. And then in, in late 44, the camp shut down and the question is, what do you do with the Jews now? And so there was a death march back to Hungary. And the idea was to massacre them at the Hungarian border, which is what happened to a different group. The march was interceded. It was ambushed by Tito's partisans. And from there, my father walks from the middle of Serbia in the middle of the winter to Bulgaria with a shirt and pants, no socks, no sweater, um, no compass, no GPS, no anything. We've actually traced the walk on, on Google Earth. It's a 138-kilometer walk through the mountains. So he survives these two death marches. I didn't know her story. I didn't know his story. And that's why writing the book for me, in addition to examining the bystander, became such a powerful project because, A, finally gave me the opportunity to learn about my parents, and more important in the context of our conversation, Matt, highlighted for me the absolute requirement to address the question of the bystander. So in both of your parents' cases, people who did not know your parents stepped in to help your parents. In my mother's case, the elderly woman, yes. The person who ratted on them, no. Right, right. Um, in my father's case, nobody. Um, and what is interesting is, as I was writing the book, um, unfortunately, my father became cognitively impaired, so it was, it was difficult to communicate with him. But there was one extraordinary moment when the wires crossed, and we were able to have once and one time only a conversation about the book. And we talked about the bystander, and both my father and my mother believed that the bystander did not owe them a duty 
because they believe that from the bystander's perspective, they, my mother and my father, were the other and that the bystander does not owe a duty to the other. You've made a different conclusion. I'm almost certain, with all due respect to my parents, right? <laughs> yeah. First, before we get into the legal question, like where where's that moral obligation come from? And, and more importantly, why is it that sometimes we act on it and sometimes we ignore it? There is this myth out there that we all know to do the right thing, which I am aware of the myth, and I think it's no more than a myth. And that's why, for me, it was so important to shift the conversation from the moral ethical conversation to the legal conversation. And I'm sure we'll get into this, but I do need to add that um, I am beyond grateful that here in Utah, that Representative Brian King has introduced duty to act bystander legislation. And what Representative King's bill, in essence, criminalizes the bystander. But I also need to add that the legislation introduced by Representative King is an add-on to existing legislation here in Utah, where there already is a duty with respect to a child in peril or an elderly person in peril. Are there models for this in in other states and other countries? 10 other states have this and 28 other countries have this. Okay, so let's talk about that. Like, what are these legal obligations? Here in Utah, the obligation would be only to dial 911. There's no obligation to intervene, to intercede, to provide CPR, to break up a fight between two idiots because you don't know who's idiot A and who's idiot B. All the legislation would call on you to do is to dial 911. It's, frankly, it's a low bar of a duty, but it is would be codified in the criminal code. What's the value of the crime of failure to respond? Let's say, is it 100% as bad as the criminal act that results if you don't respond? Is it 50% as bad? What, like, Where do you place the failure to respond on, on the spectrum of criminality leading to the ultimate crime? It's an excellent question. I view it solely through the lens of the survivor. I view this legislation through their eyes only. I confess to that. I admit to that. Which in many ways, Matt, takes us to the book that just came out in September, The Armies of Enablers, because there, when I interviewed the sexual assault survivors, I asked them a question, which was, what were your expectations of the enabler? And their response across the board was that they expected the enabler to protect them. And as I discussed in the book, the overwhelming majority of enablers did not protect the individual in peril, but protected the institution. So the bystander, when he sees the person in peril and and continues on their merry way, has abandoned the survivor, the person in peril. And in the context of the criminal aspect of this, if we can tie it back to the Holocaust, um, I fall in the camp of Holocaust experts. I'm not a Holocaust expert, but Holocaust experts make the argument, which I agree with, that without the bystander, the Holocaust never happens. As bad as the perpetrators were, you know, Hitler, Himmler, Heydrich, Eichmann, and friends, Without the bystander, what they did could never have happened. So if you think about a person in peril as a result, for instance, of a crime, you know, there was a perpetrator. If we don't impose on the bystander the obligation to just dial 911, what we are doing is we are facilitating or enabling the perpetrator. And from the person in peril's perspective, it's an absolute lose-lose. You have two distinct bookends, and what we were trying to impose here is indeed a uh, legal obligation on the bystander to do one simple thing, which is to dial 911. You've said dialing 911 is a really low bar. Yeah. Where, 
ideally should the bar be? And I think that the 911 bar, if you will, actually is, is a very workable model because it does not endanger the bystander. Intervening or interceding potentially endangers the bystander. There's no intention for the bystander to be in peril. So that's why I think Representative King is absolutely correct that 911, yes, imposes an, an obligation, but in many ways, from the perspective of the bystander, it's a minimal obligation. From the perspective of the person in peril, it may well end up saving their lives. And I think in terms of a cost-benefit analysis, from my perspective, there's no doubt that it's an absolute win-win. There are a lot of people right now in this time in our nation's history who argue that they're is a danger in calling police, particularly to minoritized individuals and communities. You are absolutely correct. And that was brought home very clearly to me in a book talk that I gave at University of Virginia Law School a couple of years ago, where an African-American law student said to me the following. She said to me, Professor Giora, this is all very interesting. And you know, Matt, when somebody, you're, you're in academia, when somebody says to you, it's really interesting, it means they're going to disagree with you. And It does, right? 100% of the time. <laughs> It's code word, right? And um, and she said to me the following. She said, Professor Giora, let me lay it out for you. When you dial 911, the immediate assumption of law enforcement is that you, upper middle class white guy, law professor, that you're a victim. When we dial 911, the immediate assumption is that we are the perpetrator. And I, as is Representative King, are well aware of that reality, that concern. And I do agree with you that for minority communities, There is a concern, absolutely a legitimate concern, which is why in the context of this legislation, it's not enough to legislate. There's absolutely going to be a requirement to undertake a very broad educational effort to ensure that we, collective we, understand how different communities perceive this and how different communities are perceived. And while I well understand that, that from my perspective, does not in any way delegitimize the effort to criminalize the bystander. Are we potentially putting people in a lose-lose situation then? I mean, like, like people can either call the police who, you know, may have legitimate fears, may escalate a situation, or we're going to criminalize them for not doing so and trying to make a moral and ethical judgment in the moment about what is right in that moment. I think that... If you're walking down the street and you see somebody who's just fallen and is clearly in distress, I don't see that, and just dialing 911, I don't see that in any way as a lose-lose. Where it can get perhaps more complicated is in circumstance-dependent, and that's why there's a loophole or mitigating factor in, in the legislation that if by dialing 911 the bystander would be potentially harmed, then that circumstance, the duty would be waived. So we're aware of the fact that in those particular circumstances, it would be appropriate for the prosecutor not to move forward. Can we dive into that a little bit? Because you said earlier, like, you know, the role of the bystander in the Holocaust was significant. The Holocaust doesn't happen, but for bystanders standing by, there was no 911 back then. If there had been, it would have, like, dialed into the Nazis, right? 911. Let me recall the 911 in Budapest and said, hey, this 12-year-old child and her mother 
are running through the streets. The authorities who said, "Hey, thanks for the thanks for the tip." Right, right. <laughs> so, what's the responsibility? What what's what should have happened there? And I guess that's what I'm asking too. Here is, you know, if, if we're going to draw this line, what truly is the responsibility of people to intervene if they don't trust the systems that are providing that intervention? Right. I think that it would be incorrect then to impose this because we the authorities would have welcomed the phone call for, for nefarious purposes. But what I do learn about the bystander from the Holocaust are the consequences from the perspective of the person in peril from the bystander's decision not to intervene. There's no doubt that you, I mean, there's no ex post facto, you can't apply the law retroactively. Um, but because I am absolutely convinced of the bystander's role by not acting, even though not acting is acting. In the Holocaust, that's why I absolutely believe that one of the primary lessons I have learned about the Holocaust are the consequences of quote-unquote inaction. Therefore, my firm belief that this absolutely must be viewed as, as a misdemeanor, not as a felony, but as a misdemeanor. Let's talk about the last four years. Our country watched a president engaged in demagoguery consolidate power over individuals who followed him to the point that a few weeks ago, some of those individuals conducted an insurrection on our nation's capital with, in some cases, intention to assassinate leaders. Where is the point where we as bystanders should have done something. Who were the bystanders in this case, and what what could have been done? Before January, so I think it was in July or August, I was invited to contribute a chapter to a book that will be published next year, which, not my book, I mean, I contributed a chapter, which explores the limits of tolerance, which is a fascinating topic. Hmm. And so I chose as my topic whether or not in the context of free speech, we should impose limits on the free speech of elected national leaders. And I examined two national leaders. I examined then-President Trump and Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. And I gave very specific examples of their speech, which I believe both Trump and Netanyahu absolutely incite. And because I'm a firm believer that words have meaning and that words can kill, that I, in this uh, chapter, recommended that there be imposed limits on their free speech, including the waiving of immunity. I wrote that before January 6th. Mm-hmm. Um, because to tie your question together, the bystanders or those who are complicit, and you know, we could talk for hours about members of the U.S. Congress, who, from my perspective, were absolutely complicit. I'm not sure if some of them fall into the category of bystanders, others fall into the category of enablers, but there is no doubt that those who should have prevented what happened that day absolutely, from my perspective, failed to do so because they made the conscious decision to actively or passively support incitement. That, for me, in the context of what we're discussing in the larger issue, should not go unpunished. There are a lot of thorny sort of 
questions here, you know, calling the police versus the danger inherent in calling police for some groups, free speech versus incitement. I suppose there could be some pretty legitimate, and I'm, I'm sure there is some pretty good debate about where this obligation stands in light of these sorts of, you know, pluses and minuses. But there is some pretty low-hanging ethical fruit here and probably low-hanging legal fruit as well. And sexual abuse sure seems to be that. Um, And that's the topic of the upcoming event the S.J. Quinney College of Law is hosting at the University of Utah. Talk about that. So the conference we're hosting next Friday, as you correctly note, addresses enablers, particularly in the context of of athletics, which was the topic of of my book, The Armies of Enablers. What we're looking into in this conference, it's a multidisciplinary cross-section of panelists, but I want to walk you and and the listeners through the conference. The keynote speaker is a gentleman named John Vaughn. A lot of people recognize as a former running back. Yeah. He played football at the University of Michigan and then played in the NFL. He will be followed by a woman named Tiffany Thomas Lopez, who I interviewed for the book Armies of Enablers. And then we have a criminal law panel, an ethics panel, and then a looking forward panel. It's clear to us, given the the number of people who have signed up for this, I don't know if the word is how interesting this is, because this this is a terrible issue. It is clearly a timely issue. And I think by by having very frank a very frank discussion on these issues, we will hopefully have the public understand the critical role that enablers and bystanders play in sexual assault. So for instance, you know, Ms. Lopez, she told her trainer about what Larry Nasser was doing. Not only did she tell him, she actually demonstrated to her. And there's a pretty good, I mean, not just in that case, but in many, many athletes' cases in the Nasser case, there were reports made to other people. 100% correct. And those are the enablers. In the case of of John Vaughn at Michigan, I need to, in full disclosure, um, John and I are uh, writing a book together, which is about all this, about his story and the University of Michigan story. And you are 100% right that people in authority knew. And then the question is, what decision or decisions did the people in authority make or not make? And in case after case after case, as I demonstrated in, in the first book, in the Armies of Enablers, at Michigan State, Penn State, Ohio State, USA Gymnastics, and the Catholic Church, those who were positioned to protect the person in peril made the clear decision to protect the institution, thereby abandoning the person in peril. That's, for me... I understand these are uncomfortable issues. I understand that. But given the the sheer pervasiveness of this, I mean, we can talk about the Boy Scouts. We can talk about other religious organizations. The Boy Scouts has been 100,000 sex abuse claims made. You and I both know that 100,000 is just skimming, scratching the surface. We both know. Right. At the University of Michigan, there were, in the relevant time period, there were somewhere between seven to 9,000 football players. I think it's 850 who have come forward. The overwhelming majority is John Doe. John Vaughn is one of the few who has come out by name. 850 have come forward. We both know there's a lot more who who were victims. We know that. One of the hopes of a conference like this, frankly, and of the book with Vaughn, is that that will help, I think that's the right word, 
others to come forward to share their story. I well understand, having interviewed many of these people, how incredibly painful it is. But I think by hosting a conference like this and having, again, as I say, so many people sign up, that it clearly shows how timely this is, how much people want to have these discussions. And um, again, I want to emphasize beyond grateful to John and, and to Tiffany as survivors to share their stories, their takeaways with the audience. It, it is not simple to, to talk about this openly. And I have enormous admiration for them. And I want to also add, Matt, you know, in the the Army's book, a number of people who I interviewed were stayed as Jane Doe, John Doe. I want to emphasize my admiration for them is as great as for those who decide to share their names. Those both categories are ex exceptionally brave and courageous. And if in a conference like this will help others to come forward and to talk about what happened to them, and I think that from our perspective, that will have been an important purpose that we will have fulfilled. That's Amos Giora. He's a professor of law at the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah and the author of several books, including The Crime of Complicity in 2017 and Armies of Enablers in 2020. Armies of Enablers is also the subject of a virtual event that will be hosted by the University of Utah on Friday, January 29. You can find more information online. Amos Giora, thank you. Matt, I cannot thank you enough. It was very gracious of you to have me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>